afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's up? Welcome to Sons of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Rojack, and with me as always is Luke Smith. And we're going solo today. We don't have a guest this week, and apologies for the slight delay in our release of this episode. I was traveling back from a bachelor party in New Orleans on Monday. Didn't get back to Los Angeles until late, so we weren't able to record until Tuesday morning. But here we go. Notre Dame beat up on their arch rival Southern Cal 31-16 on Saturday night, and I think it's safe to say that was the most complete performance we've seen out of the Irish this season. It was really fun to watch. Luke, I'm sure you'll have a lot more on what the atmosphere was like in South Bend. But it felt really good to see Notre Dame assert themselves early, pretty much from the opening drive, and not take their foot off the gas despite a late push from USC in the fourth quarter. We'll break down what we liked and didn't like from this one, and we'll obviously touch on the Kyle Hamilton injury news, and we'll also look ahead a little bit at the end and discuss the outlook for the rest of the season and how we hope and expect it to shake out. But like always, let's start with our boots on the ground. Judging by my social media feeds, Luke, it kind of felt like I was literally the only person who wasn't in South Bend this weekend. How was it? You're right. It, it surely seemed like kind of everybody and their mother was back this weekend. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, one of the most fun weekends I've had in South Bend for a game in, in some time. Uh, I went down to South Bend Friday morning and, and walked around campus Friday afternoon, started drinking pretty early at Brothers. Um, of course, it wouldn't have been a Brothers trip without an erroneous $50 charge on my card. That was some other Smith, but <laughs> other than that, had a great time. Did you get that fixed? Uh, no, but I, I got my... I had some other credit card issues that weekend that I don't want to get into, um, but uh, all all resolved. Um, anyways, uh, then we also had our buddy Pat McKillen playing at O'Rourke's on Friday night. That was a lot of fun. Um, I kind of went about it a little bit differently this Saturday, and um, I, I think it was partially having the benefit of the night game. I've complained on this podcast that this year with all the 2.30 start times, there just hasn't been a ton of time to see everybody. That's why the night game was perfect because there were so many people in town that you really could walk around. But Saturday morning, I actually walked around campus, which I don't remember the last time I've done that on a game day. Um, I don't think I ever did it during school. I think the last time I probably did that was in when I was in high school and not drinking. Um, so it was a great day. We had like 10 of us just walking around campus and it was a, it was a beautiful South Bend fall day and really just one of the most fun tailgate scenes in a while. I thought the tailgate lots were as crowded as they had been since I don't know, 2017, um, people were ready. It seemed like they, we didn't get this USC game last year and everybody was looking for that and, and for a night game and, and Saturday didn't disappoint. Um, just, just awesome tailgates all the way around and an electric stadium and, and a win over USC to boot. So we have not lost to them in South Bend since before I could drive. So it's, it's been some time and I, and I might be another 10 years before they beat us again with the state of things in Southern California right now. I know. Speaking of the state of things, you mentioned it to me a little bit. Apparently, there was hardly any USC fans there. There were none. It was far and away the fewest I've ever seen. And, and I get it, right? I mean, they suck. Um, they're horrible. <laughs> All those adjectives. 
but I, I would like say normally a, a typical Notre Dame USC game in in South Bend has say twenty percent USC fans. Yeah, they always show out. It was maybe five percent, and I barely saw any walking around that top little area, which was way too crowded. And Cincinnati uh, was was not, and it, when it was, it was mostly Irish fans, um, which is why I, I saw an article written today about attendance. I don't really know. That was pretty bad timing because the last two games Notre Dame Stadium have been sellouts. So uh, I don't know why you're complaining about that now, but maybe do some research before you write an article that's that stupid. But um, anyways, um, I thought it was a great atmosphere and in a really just engaged crowd, which is not always the case. But uh, it certainly was Saturday night, and, and it was a lot of fun. But I, I don't know. How was it watching it down in New Orleans? It was fun. I uh, watched it with a bunch of people who weren't rooting for Notre Dame and were actually actively rooting against them because they just started live betting USC as it went on. And uh, that might have partially been just to mess with me, but it was definitely the most comfortable Or they win. just hate money. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really understand it. Again, it was probably just to annoy me, but it didn't work. It actually made it a lot sweeter when Notre Dame did win and kind of dominate Throughout most of the game, and it's funny because, like, during it, I was my typical nervous wreck self. But then when I was looking back on it, I was like, I mean, yeah, they, they gave Notre Dame a little scare in the fourth after those two touchdowns. But really, from beginning to end, this was a pretty dominant effort. And the comfortable win that we've been begging for finally happened. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, and it still should have been more, which we'll get into later. But it was really, like, the first time where, besides the Purdue game, I guess, where we really weren't sweating it at all. Uh, down the stretch, which which was nice, but it, it could have been more. But like you said, uh, USC is just it's, – it's kind of ridiculous just when you consider the state of things growing up to where they are now. Uh, it's almost like night and day. It is. And we talked about it in the preview, just sort of the ebbs and flows of this rivalry in the current state of USC. The nice thing about us recording this on Tuesday is we get this gem from James Franklin out of Penn State where as they're asking – him about his interest in the USC job. He says they're worried about Illinois and all of his focus is on Illinois when it's actually Ohio State. So they just lost to Illinois. Yeah. Which (laughs) I don't know if you saw that. Like that was one of the most painful things to watch I've Mm -hmm. ever seen. We were at this one bar on Bourbon Street and there's a bunch of people watching and it's the only game on the TV. And if you didn't see or didn't hear about it. Penn State and Illinois went into nine overtimes. And even better, the final score was 20-18, to 18, I believe, um, because with this new rule in college football that in the third overtime from that point on, instead of starting from the 25 and going in, they're just basically trading off two-point attempts. And both teams just simply refused to score. I think the Illinois quarterback put up the worst stat performance of any winning quarterback Maybe in the past century. But anyway. He went, what, nine of like... Uh... So the final score was 20-18. to 18. Yeah, the Illinois starting quarterback, he finished 8 of 19 for 38 yards and a pick. He had a QBR of 20. Um, Sean Clifford, not a whole lot better. Granted, he's hurt. But anyway, Penn State was ranked 7th in the country at the time of that game. They are no longer... And yeah, it seems like James Franklin is pretty much, he just seems to be the leading candidate. It turns out Mike Tomlin is not interested in the job. He practically um, just berated the reporter at the press conference for asking him about his interest in the job. So, hey, uh, Dante Williams might not be the guy, but James Franklin could be there in the very near future. But one thing I wanted to talk about is the main thing that everyone was really talking about after the game was the light show that happened in the fourth quarter. You and I were both at the Georgia game in 2019. 
based on all the videos I've seen, it looked very similar to that. In the moment, that was incredible in Athens and just ever since then, I think Alabama started doing that where they turn off the lights, they do a LED light show. But that's what it looked like on TV. Did it live up to it in the crowd? It was awesome. And you're right. We were both at that Georgia game, but I don't really remember enjoying that in the moment. I think because I was so damn nervous about the game at hand, but this time we had what, like a 24 to three lead. So it was a little bit more enjoyable and you're at home. So it's a different environment. Um, it was awesome. And, uh, it was like, you're not used to Notre Dame doing cool things like that. Like, I mean, it was the 10 year anniversary of when they brought out crazy train for the first time that was past weekend. Um, and that was horrible for years, but I would still rather listen to that than what I'm going to get to later in this podcast, which is our current third down music, but it was really cool. Um, and the pregame, they did the same sort of thing with the dimming the lights and turning them off and just kind of an led thing. So I had, I had heard that that was going to happen a little before kickoff and I wasn't really sure what that was going to look like, but it was awesome. And frankly, it's, it's got me excited to go back this weekend for North Carolina and I'm hoping they do it again. Uh, they should do that for every night game because there were a ton of recruits in town at this game. I'm sure it impressed them. I mean, that's something that you're looking forward to play. You're looking forward to, you know, as part of being a part of a major college football program. So I, I thought it was a really job well done by Notre Dame and, and something that we're not used to seeing from them. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned the recruits. There was over a hundred recruits either in the 2022 class or 2023 who were in town on either an official or unofficial visit this past weekend and a pretty Big bounce back for Notre Dame when you consider the two biggest home recruiting weekends this season. The first one already happened in a loss to Cincinnati when the stadium was basically, there's just a lot of red there and probably not the best showing you want to put out there for potential recruits. This weekend, it looked awesome. All the reports from the recruits seemed great. Everyone seemed to have a really good time. And that's sort of the stuff, like it's hard to quantify how much does that stuff matter and I guess we'll find out in the ensuing months to come before signing day how much that had an impact on the actual recruiting class and where Notre Dame goes going forward but yeah it, it was a modern display at Notre Dame that sometimes we're just not accustomed to but really cool to see excited for the future yeah it looks like Notre Dame's got another night game this weekend if they run it back let's do it let's make that a thing and make Notre Dame a real difficult place to play because it's not always like that. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll, I think that that's not just me thinking that like a lot of people that were in town last weekend told me, you know, actually, I'm going to come out again from New York for the North Carolina game this weekend. Screw it. I don't care that it's Halloween weekend. Like that was awesome. Let's do it again. So people, um, I don't know, maybe it's partially that we just didn't get this last year and people are more inclined to, to come back out because um, they can now. But um, I think it's going to be another great atmosphere for Sam Howell and company this weekend. Yeah. We'll see. That could be a tough one. But before we get to that, let's uh, talk about what happened on the field this week. What did you like the most on Saturday? Sticks out the most is Lorenzo Styles, uh, freshman. He was the leading receiver for the Irish in Saturday's game with three catches for 57 yards. And he's just so smooth. Uh, Pete Sampson said that he reminds him of just a more physical TJ Jones, which is an interesting call. But, I mean, he made some pretty bold projections about Styles, basically saying he's going to be like – top 10 all-time in receptions in Notre Dame. And I guess I kind of forget that TJ Jones is third all-time in receptions at Notre Dame. 
which is pretty impressive, but I guess he really did play a lot his all four years at, at Notre Dame. But that's, I mean, that's not a low bar to, to try to clear, but it's just really been refreshing to see Colsey, uh, sorry, Styles and Deion Colsey, who had a big catch on Saturday as well, play and play a lot as freshman receivers because I was told Notre Dame doesn't do that. So um, it's been really interesting to, to see that happen, that if you're good enough, you will play. And if your last name is Johnson at UCF, you probably won't get snaps there either. Um, but it's just going to be really interesting to see how their roles progress as we get into November. Cause I, I really think styles in particular is going to be a major part of this offense uh, moving forward here in the last, what is it? Five, six games. Yeah. Both styles and Colsey played a season high in snaps after the game. Brian Kelly basically said they're not looked at as backups. Like they're in the mix and they're going to continue to be in the mix. The season goes on. Another thing too that I thought was kind of interesting is that they were actually mostly in on run plays. If you look at the play distribution when they're on the field, that's not always the case with freshman wide receivers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times guys come in and they don't block because in high school, they probably didn't have to block because they were the best player on the field by a mile and spent most of their time carrying the ball, scoring touchdowns. But there's a video that was going around on Twitter of styles. I think his mom posted it actually, where he just gets one-on-one with the USC safety on a run block and just barrels over him. Um, and you don't yep. always see that kind of physicality with the freshmen. And if they can stay out there, run or pass, they're clearly very effective. Colsey had a huge catch on third down. And I think that comparison with TJ Jones is, is pretty good. TJ might be one of the most underrated receivers and really just players overall that Notre Dame's had in recent memory. And another thing, Sonny Styles was in attendance too. The five-star, his five-star brother, that can't hurt. No, no. I mean, we certainly need him and. That was actually part of Pete's comparison to T.J. Jones. You know, T.J. Jones having a dad that played in the NFL. Obviously, uh, Lorenzo Styles' dad played in the NFL as well. So just, like, people that know the game really well. But, you know, other than Styles, which, like I said, I'm really excited to see moving forward, I love Bo Bauer making a play. And part of that is because uh, pregame, I was in the in the tailgate lots and was waiting in a porta potty line. Started talking to these two guys in front of me. And long story short, they were – Bo Bauer's best friends from high school and staying with him for the weekend. They're from, you know, Erie, Pennsylvania, a good buddy of mine went to their high school. So they all knew each other. So we were talking and uh, it's really funny. I thought, you know, really cool for them that they got to see him have a a big interception return while while they were in town. I wish he had housed it because uh, I hope they gave him shit for that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, did you see the icon video? Drew White did. He said, how did you get tackled by a quarterback? Not even a fast quarterback. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the Ademololo brothers uh, should have knocked out Slovis there, but I guess he was trying to avoid the Max Redfield penalty. Um, but anyways, I thought that was cool to see him get a, a pick. And, I mean, he's shown now that what that's two interceptions in two weeks. The one was on the two-point conversion, obviously. But he's making plays um, at, at the lineback, linebacker position, so that's great to see. And just to reiterate again, the atmosphere during the game was one of the best atmospheres I can remember in a long time. Um, I thought the Clemson one last year obviously was pretty good, but with what was that like? 2000, I don't know, 8,000 people. So nowhere near the capacity of a full stadium. Um, but it, it helps that this game had the least amount of USC fans. I can ever remember at a Notre Dame USC game, but I thought all the fans were engaged. The, the light shows are awesome. And, and the players were engaged too. And I got to give some credit there because, you know, I didn't really think that was the case the Cincinnati game. Um, that was a different story on, on Saturday. And I think any video she can see, showed that they really enjoyed kind of the the explosions that were going on around us of lights. So it was it was a cool atmosphere and, and like I said, I'm looking forward to seeing something similar this weekend. 
Yeah, the video of Kyron and Braden Lindsay on the sideline when the lights initially go out, like that excitement, that look of pure joy. Yeah, you see Sebo Flemister get off the exercise <laughs> bike. <laughs> start dancing around. Yeah, that was great. As for me, I mean, we haven't talked about the Notre Dame, the new look Notre Dame no huddle offense uh, that we saw on Saturday, and pretty much all year. If you look at it, Notre Dame's offense has been most effective when their backs are up against the wall namely the scoring drive to beat Toledo in the final two possessions against Virginia Tech. Those drives, like, saved the season and are the main reason this team really – are the main reason this team only has one loss. But it led a lot of us to wonder why couldn't they play like that all the time. And on Saturday they did. Brian Kelly mentioned that during the bye week the entire staff did a self-scout and tried to right some of the wrongs, and it became clear during that that part of the offense's issue – was that it became too predictable in its methodical pace of play, and that style wasn't really best suited for this offense, and particularly the quarterback, Jack Cohn, and that led to a brand-new look that we saw on Saturday from the opening drive, and it was really just refreshing to see. Um, There's a bunch of numbers that we could look at. Here's a few that really tell the story. Cohn finished 4 of 16 for 130 yards when he threw within 2.5 seconds of getting the snap. When he held it longer than 2.5 seconds, he was 6 of 12 for 58 yards with one touchdown but also an interception. This isn't the Cone we saw against Florida State in the season opener, and that's fine because Cone hasn't been able to connect on the deep ball since that game like he did against Florida State when he completed 3 of 8 shot plays. But since then, he's just 4 of 21 and throwing the ball 20 or more yards downfield. Some of that's on the receivers, notably the lens he dropped against Purdue. But at this point, like... Look, Notre Dame has the skill talent on the outside to turn a quick strike passing game into explosive plays. We saw that with Styles on the screen pass where he just turned around, caught the ball, and then ran nearly 30 yards. And they've got the right quarterback to get him the ball. But maybe the best thing about this no-huddle offense is the help it gives its own offensive line, which has obviously been the subject of a lot of criticism on this podcast as well as pretty much any other one. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I kind of want to talk about what they did with the up-tempo because while it was you know more fast-paced and just less time for coming to overthink and more just reacting. They had possession longer, and the margin was 31 minutes to about 24, which is interesting because some of those drives still seem like longer sustained drives, like more what we were used to seeing out of last year's group. They also ran the ball more successfully, as we'll get into later. I mean, I thought that the biggest drive of the game was probably after USC scored to make it 24-16, and, and Notre Dame went down and just had a long drive and, and scored a touchdown um, and capped it off with the running play in the end zone with Tyler, in the red zone with Tyler Buckner. So I'm just kind of curious to see, you know, what what do they do with this style moving forward? Is this what their new offense was? Or were they just trying to be more ex- explosive the first half of the season and they realized – I guess we just we can't do this as well as we thought, and but we know that this kind of tempo thing is going to work because every time they've deployed it this year, it, it has worked. But at the same time, do you want to try to get into a shootout with a North Carolina or with uh, Virginia? I don't know about that. So it's um, it's going to be interesting to see how they deploy this moving forward because it, it certainly seemed like they kind of found something. But like I said, every time Brian Kelly's done something this year, he's kind of done something different the next week. So I, I don't really know um, what we're going to do. Yeah, and you think about part of that is USC – had two weeks to prepare, and I'm sure they didn't see that coming, really, especially not on the first drive of the game. But the biggest thing for me is Cone was pressured five times on 29 dropbacks and was sacked only once. So with that in mind, given the struggles on the offensive line this year, I think you kind of have to go with that. Even if you 
might give up some opportunities for the opponent to have the ball. I mean, USC actually outgained Notre Dame um, on total yards. They had 428 to Notre Dame's 383. But again, part of that was Notre Dame was playing sort of a bend but don't break style, just kind of letting Drake London get his, and we'll get more into that later. And had like, you know, like an 80-yard interception return. Yeah. So that that kind of skews that as well. Exactly. And, you know, they don't have to go with this every drive. And you already got a change of pace quarterback in Tyler Buckner who looked a little bit more comfortable passing the ball in this one. They gave more opportunities that weren't just obvious run situations. He had a really great pass to Michael Mayer across the middle. So I think that when you have a quarterback who can come in, who can kind of change things up, and then you can go up into this up-tempo, I think that you you give yourself more room to try different things as the season goes on. But, again, going back to the line, it looks like they found something on the left side with Joe Alt and Andrew Kostovic. With those two on the left, Patterson in the middle, and a more consistent Kane Madden and Josh Lug on the right side. Notre Dame has rushed 72 times for 349 yards with that group on the O-line, which leads me to the second thing I liked on Saturday, um, Kyron Williams. I don't want more, what more you could say about him. We started calling him franchise for a reason last year, and he, he might not be the best player on the team. I'd still give that honor to Kyle Hamilton or Michael Mayer, but he's the heartbeat of the team and played lights out, finished with 25 carries for 138 yards and two scores, plus he racked up six catches for another 42 yards as well, including a key third and 13 play. And watching him run is just so incredible because he's so elusive and so physical, despite I think only being 5'9". And even after he gets tackled, he's still fun to watch because he immediately starts jawing with whoever tackled him or forced him out of bounds, and he was doing that all game with USC players. He's the most fun Notre Dame running back in my lifetime. I think that's pretty safe to say. And honestly, I'm just going to enjoy watching him the rest of the season because we probably only got a few more games left of him in the blue and gold. I agree. I think he's the coolest player we've had in a long time. Uh, it's maybe since Golden Tate, honestly, but he's not nearly as douchey as Golden Tate, if that <laughs> still makes any sense. Um, so I'll go that far uh, of saying it. But um, And he plays for much better teams than Golden Tate ever did. But, yeah, he, he's awesome. I mean, just the way he runs, it's uh, his vision is, like, so impressive to me. I mean, so many of those runs that he has, he's just, like, he sees the defense so well, and I don't know how. Greg tweeted out um, a stat today. Let me pull this up. I thought it was just very telling about the way that, that he runs the football, and, and this isn't to say that the offensive line didn't do a good job because they did, but Kyron had – 97 of his 138 yards after contact on Saturday night still. Uh, he forced five missed tackles. I mean, that's just it's a very impressive. And, and yeah, that's that number just the seemed way low, wins. honestly. I feel like he yeah. broke way more than and, well, five. And well, that's, I mean, it's it's PFF, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And maybe, yeah, maybe that's five times where a tackler actually made contact missed with him. him. Yeah, because if yeah. he jukes a guy out, does that count? Right, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, I just think just very telling about how much he makes – things happen for himself and that's not to say the line didn't play well because they did uh, but just wanted to mention that as well yeah I mean he was incredible and finally got over 100 yards he, he got almost half of what his season total was coming into this game in just one game and like now he's making plays in the past game as well he's just really fun and uh, the last player I wanted to spotlight was Isaiah Foskey because he's quietly shooting up the ranks as one of the best pass rushers we've had in recent memory we saw flashes of his potential last year, got everyone really excited about what he could do, and then he's actually playing better than advertised, and part of that is because Brian Kelly's sort of tempered expectations, talking about his fall camp. We've already talked about how weird that was, 
But he had two sacks and two forced fumbles on Saturday to go along with five total tackles. He genuinely looks like Stephon Tewitt out there. He can get by a tackle, not just with strength, but also some finesse. And he's only going to get better from here. And we've talked a lot about the defensive line as a whole, but him specifically, like, he's turning into just a force on the edge. He really is. The amount of just, like, one-armed sacks he has are just insane to me. Um, I, I don't know how he does that. And, I mean, how many forced fumbles does he have this year? At least four, right? I mean, I'll look right now, but... Um, I, I mean, I, the one in the Cincinnati game two this past weekend, no, he, has um, th- he has three this year. Wow. But anyways, I, I mean, Justin Tuck sent the single season record for sacks at 13 and a half in, I think 2003, there's a chance he gets to that. I mean, you know, you've probably figured the Navy game is a wash because of the triple option, but the way he's playing, I mean, I think that's, that's potentially doable. Yeah, so he's third nationally selfishly, I hope that he almost doesn't get to that mark so that we see him for another year and he can really play for some more money next year. We'll see. But uh, speaking of players making money, I think we got to talk about Kyle Hamilton. Who really knows? We've talked a lot this year about how Brian Kelly has been particularly coy and a little bit cryptic with how he talks about injuries. And at times, it just seems like he's straight up lying. So from your view in the crowd, when he went down, what could you see? What sense could you get? How did information get to you? So I couldn't see anything, actually, because I was on the Notre Dame sideline, uh, but I was in the other like corner of the end zone, and I I think I may have actually like missed the play. I just heard like you know Notre Dame player injured down or whatever, and I thought, okay, whatever. And I looked up, and I'm like, oh, wait. Like, where's Hamilton on the field? <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh, I don't see him. I'm like, that means that he was the injured player on the field, and then – um, a buddy of mine was actually just like coincidentally sitting in the aisle over for me. And he looks at his phone and he goes, it was Kyle Hamilton. I'm like, sweet. Okay. Uh, and so then I'm just like, everybody starts freaking out, sending ex- like extreme texts saying it's his ACL. He's done. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. But then I see him later in the game and he's walking very gingerly, but he is walking. So I'm like, all right, I don't really know. Um, but at that point, my mind had already gone to, why would he ever play another play for Notre Dame? Um, I, I like it. And listen, like as much as I would love to watch him play and people can make the argument, you know, why wouldn't he want to play? Um, there's a lot of reasons he shouldn't want to play. I, I mean, Jalen Smith is the first thing that came to my mind, really, once I thought about this, because we've seen it with our kind of like freak talent. And Jalen Smith, obviously, we got the, the whole career out of him um, besides that last game. But like... I mean, Jalen Smith now is like kind of like an afterthought in the NFL. How much of that is due to that injury? I don't know. He did have one very good year in the in the NFL, but I just think you've got to think about future, you know, aspirations. And and listen, we've already seen enough from Kyle Hamilton to remember how good he was. I mean, just think about the first half of his season, two of the first three games, the interceptions he was making. Everything he's done, the first play we ever saw him play Notre Dame was a pick six. So like his legacy is fine. It's it's stored. We know he's maybe the most talented defensive player to ever go through Notre Dame. He went to a college football playoff, had an interception in the ACC championship game. He's done everything he could do, and, and as we'll probably get to later in this podcast, I don't know how likely the odds are that this team has a chance at getting to the playoffs. So what are you playing for? I don't know. Um, but I, I, 
I I don't know. They they've said what it was a fat pad injury, which I still don't know what the hell that yeah. is. Yeah, is Kelly just messing with us now? Is he making up body parts? Well, because I the replies on that were like that's something that you could only tell from an MRI, and he had not had an MRI at that point. So I I, yeah. I don't know. It's like when uh, in Friday Night Lights when Gary Gaines tells the team that. Booby's fine, no tear. Yeah. We'll be back again on Monday. So it seemed very weird to be that optimistic before an MRI. And if we just look at this objectively, obviously you would like to have him out there against North Carolina. They've already announced he's not going to be playing, which I totally get. But And again, they beat North Carolina without him last year for half and actually shut him out. So maybe we don't need him, um, I, although I would like to have him. But there's no reason for him to play the Navy game against a cut-blocking team because that's just uh, – disaster asking to happen really the only game where I actually am like we need him to win this game is the Virginia game and even then I don't know but they have some very talented wide receivers as we'll discuss later um and so I would love to have him for that game but at that point what you're playing three four games is it worth risking it when you're pretty much a lock to be a top 10 maybe top five pick I just don't know that it is and you know there are insurance policies these days for injuries and everything. I don't really know what that looks like from Kyle Hamilton's end, but I just uh, I struggle to think that we're going to see him again in a Notre Dame uniform. Yeah, look, man, it it sucks. It's brutal. Honestly, when I was watching it on TV when they were showing the replays, at first glance it kind of looked like a, a groin injury because he, he almost it looked like he was doing the splits basically, and then he starts holding his knee, and you're like, oh god, um, just honestly really unfortunate and. It reminds me, it's a little bit Kyle Rudolph-esque, just because Kyle Rudolph was only at Notre Dame for three years. When he was out in the field, he was incredible. You could clearly see right away that he was going to be an NFL talent, incredibly physically gifted, but just a great player, great teammate. But unfortunately, Rudolph dealt with injuries throughout his career. We never really got a full season of him at 100% um, other than his freshman year, and that seems to be the case with Kyle because last year he was amazing despite the fact that he was dealing with a serious ankle issue from the second game on, so much so that he had to get off-season surgery on it. This year he's been playing 100%, and he's been playing like one of the best players in the country. Mel Kuyper came out with his mock draft today. He's the number two best player on his big board. But who knows how much we're going to see of him the rest of the year. You mentioned Kyle has plenty of reasons to not play. Let's just be honest. Like if he sits out if it doesn't need surgery, but he doesn't really want to play through pain. Like I get it. He's going to be the number two or he's going to be a top five pick, assuming he's able to get this fixed and doesn't suffer another freak injury between now and the draft. And that's something you have to consider because that's a shit ton of money on the line. His entire future is, is at risk here. And you've heard different things from different people. It seems like this is an injury where Kyle could essentially, if he does play, He'd be playing through some pain, and he's not going to be at 100%. Now, granted, even if Kyle's not playing 100%, he's better than probably every other safety in the country still. But it's a decision he's got to make, and it's a business decision. Um, If Notre Dame had any real serious chance at winning a national championship this year, that's another discussion. But like you mentioned, this team really isn't in contention to make the playoff unless a bunch of crazy shit happens. Which... could, yeah. but I it don't, could. but it's still, as we'll, and we'll get to this later, there's a lot that needs to happen. Yeah, and I think it, it just, it's, Notre Dame's not a position. I think you and I and any rational fan is watching this team thinking they're not going to win a national championship this year. So we'll see what happens. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more information to come out regarding Kyle and his injury. And um, Kelly already said that a lot of people are going to weigh in on this decision. There's obviously the medical staff at Notre Dame. There's Kyle. There's Kyle's family. A lot of people are going to have a say in this. 
We'll see what happens, and it seems like we'll probably just take this week to week. You mentioned the Virginia game. That's exactly three weeks from the time of injury on Saturday. It's going to be tough without him this weekend against North Carolina, and like you said, no real reason to play him against Navy. And then there comes Virginia, who actually has one of the best passing offenses we haven't really heard much about this year. So we'll see, but definitely going to be something to follow. And just honestly, most of all, just it's a real big bummer. Like if he ends up saying, hey, you know what? Um, I don't think it's in my best interest to play the rest of the season. Every Notre Dame fan should applaud him and, you know, be grateful for everything that he did for the Notre Dame football program. I'm sure there'll be assholes who don't do that and think it's a selfish move, but those guys don't deserve the time of day. And it would just be an unfortunate end to an incredible career. But we're not there yet. But just if that is the case, I think everyone should look at it um, objectively and just understand this is a decision that means a lot more than just the last six games on Notre Dame's schedule. They 100% should and they 100% won't. But yeah. (laughs) All right. Anything else you didn't like from the game? Yeah. So I alluded to this earlier. Whatever this third down music, DJ Sticky Boots, who was back in the booth, so I'm giving him a shout-out, not in the good way. Uh, whatever they're playing on third down this year is horrible. It's terrible. It's like a it's like a little girl's voice that says, are you scared? And then it's a siren. First, it's way too slow developing, especially when USC's going with tempo, so like you can't even get the crowd hyped up. Second of all, everybody in the crowd hates it. Like Everybody around me was like, turn this shit off. It's awful. Um so I don't know why they're doing that. They, they At one point, they played Crazy Train, and I would have rather heard that than this because it's just so bad. Uh, so that's it. Related, the Pac-12 refs are just fucking awful. I mean, what <laughs> what was that J.D. Bertrand roughing the passer call? Are you kidding me? And just when they called targeting on D.J. Brown initially where he did not come close to hitting him, thank God that got picked up. Um, I just thought they were objectively horrible all night missed a bunch of holds on usc Um, the austin pick i try not to really talk about rest but i think officials this year have just been awful and maybe it's they're not used to being in front of crowds again but they've been awful and and finally Notre Dame not punching it in at the end was pretty soft uh it's usc (laughs) like i've heard some people make the suggestion that maybe brian kelly thought he was just paying a debt to steve sarkeesian for not putting like a thousand points on them in 2014 and when he thanked steve for that but sarks at texas now yeah i was gonna say he's not a usc uh, whoever this dante williams character is you don't owe him anything just put up 60 on his ass um so I, I would have liked to see it. That was like one of the only times the crowd booed all night was when they didn't yeah. score at the end. And you know, Tommy, given what we saw last year against Georgia Tech at the end of the game when Notre Dame was trying to punch it in there at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we should point out that the spread was at play there. It wasn't this case. Right. So I bet Tommy probably wanted to call for it and Brian Kelly made the executive decision to to kneel it out and run out the clock. But yeah, that was a little disappointing. But Notre Dame could have put up more points early on in the game, which is the one thing that stood out to me. It's a little nitpicking here because the red zone offense, they eventually kind of got it figured out as the game went on. But it was a struggle early. Uh, Notre Dame's first three trips to the red zone, they got 10 points out of it. The opening drive looked so good until Kevin Austin drops another pass, which has become a problem for him this year. And then as part of the Jonathan Doerr experience, chip shot close early in the game. Knew he was going to shank it. He did. And I immediately thought back to the Cincinnati game, like, here we go again, where we move the ball right down the field on the opening drive and then just shoot ourselves in the foot 
Fortunately, that wasn't the case. Notre Dame was able to score next trip to the red zone on a touchdown pass to Avery Davis. But then when Bo Bauer gets hawked by Slovis, Notre Dame immediately went three and out. This time they at least made the field goal. But it was frustrating. They got to figure it out at the end on the drive when when Notre Dame had the ball and Jack Cohn was still in the game. They didn't go to Buckner. I was shocked. And then they ran it on first and second down, which made me even more shocked because when Buckner's in there, the ground game is clearly way more effective. But they figured that out later on in the game. Buckner scores a touchdown. That should be the plan going forward. Um, but look, against a better team, like those kind of chances could come back to haunt you. And Notre Dame could have put more points up on the rival. So anytime you let that opportunity slip, it's disappointing. But other than that, uh, I was pretty happy all around with the performance in the field. That was just one thing that sort of stood out to me. That reminds me. I don't know if it was you that said this or somebody else. And if it was somebody else, I apologize for not giving you credit. But Kevin Austin is pretty much like the receiver version of of uh, Jonathan Doerr. Uh, like he just makes these ridiculous catches and then drops easy ones like that. I mean, when he dropped that, I knew door was going to miss. Like there was not a doubt in my mind. I, I almost didn't even watch it because I just knew no chance. Um, I did hear pregame. He was nursing a groin injury. So that's, you know, something, but um, I didn't like that, but the, it was pretty classic. The other thing, and this brings me back to pack 12 refs. How was that called an interception? Kevin Austin caught that ball. He, like that guy never had his hands on it until they hit the ground. Yeah. And like, I, mean, I, I was like right close. in the moment. I'm like, he caught that ball. Like, and there's, I think Greg tweeted out pictures of it. There's frames. That guy never has. And it also was pass interference because Austin couldn't fully extend his arms. So that was a catch. Uh, and like the dual possession, especially when the receiver has it first goes to the receiver. Yeah. I don't know. It's an up and down for both of them. John Doerr, if you look at it in field goal percentage, he's actually tied for 118th in the country. And he has two game winners. From, yeah, 40, from 45 plus deep. <laughs> yeah, when it's from 40 to 49, he's 4 of 5. 30 to 39, he's 2 of 4. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Game on the line, though, he's 100%. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into who's drinking free from Saturday, and then we'll kind of take a look at the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, you already hit on him, but it's got to be Kyron Williams for me. Uh, 25 carries for uh, 138 yards and, and two touchdowns. Really just good to see him finally get that big game. He he's been looking for and just hasn't really had the opportunity to do because of, of what the line looked like earlier this year. But like I said, he made so much of that still happen on his own. And, and I don't want to disparage the line. They were very good Saturday night for what they have been, but um, just good to see him. And he's just so hyped up on the sideline. Just really like we've already talked about, he's the coolest player we've ever had. And just good to see him have that moment. And, and really will probably be his only game against USC because he's going to be going to the draft this year. And he didn't get that game last year. So cool moment for him. Yeah, definitely. And I guess we're just going to, takeaway from Brian Kelly here because I'm going to go with Tariq Bracey and both Bracey and Kyron Williams got game balls after this one but look Bracey's been the subject of a lot of criticism um, by us and many more but he played the best game of his career when Notre Dame really needed him the most he got the start because Notre Dame went into a nickel 4-2-5 base defense so he started and played the most snaps he has all season Brian Kelly said he's aged nine years during Bracey's four so I think that one it's pretty fair to say and two, I know he's 21, so Miller lights mm-hmm. on me if I ever see you, Tariq. Uh, you played a really solid game uh, against USC, and honestly, we're probably going to need him a lot more as the season goes on, especially if Hamilton's not out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure Tariq Bracey used to play pickup basketball at Rolfs as a freshman when I was a senior, so he's definitely been there a while, um, like on Fridays. But uh, that's actually one thing I wanted to talk about. Like Drake London, who we have not actually talked about, was Drake London. He had 50... 
what, 15 catches on 20 targets. They only threw the ball 39 times. So He's a stud, dude. <laughs> I mean, I know that in the in the grand scheme of things, Brian Kelly said that he didn't really change the game because they were kind of just letting him have it, and they yeah. were able to contain the rest of the offense. But just in terms of, wow, that guy is the best player on the field, and we don't really have anything. We can just only hope to contain him. Like that one play when he had that 44-yarder and got behind Clarence Lewis, like Lewis, yes, he got burnt, but he – made a really good play on the ball, like textbook. London catches the ball above his head. Lewis shoots his right hand through and tries to knock the ball out. He played that part perfectly, and London was just so strong. He just held on to it, made a huge catch that eventually led to a touchdown. But I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's weird. And, you know, they only played London on the field side, but they never lined up Cam Hart against him, who is their best cornerback. Cam Hart's played both the boundary and field side this year, which – I thought he might have been a better fit there than than Clarence Lewis, but what do I know? It honestly reminded me of Reggie Bush in 2005. Although the difference was Reggie Bush was scoring touchdowns, Drake London wasn't. Yeah. Pretty big difference. As it relates to the rest of the season, we already talked about Hamilton, where this team goes from here. At the time of this recording, they're ranked 11th in the AP, in the coaches poll. They're 6-1. and one. They got five more games left in the regular season schedule and then a bowl game. How do you expect the season to go? And I guess, what are you most hoping for through the second half? It's an interesting position Notre Dame's in um, because as of now, there is not a ranked team on the schedule um, and they have not beaten a ranked team. Uh, I think if Virginia beats BYU this weekend, who's ranked 25th, then they'll obviously be ranked. They'll be six or seven and two at that point. Um, But it kind of feels like Notre Dame is stuck um, at like maybe a seventh, eighth highest. Um, yeah. like they'll move up cause there's going to be some serious carnage in the big 10 here in the big 10 East specifically Michigan, Michigan state right. going to play each other. Ohio state's going to play. So they'll move up, but not enough to seriously threaten. I guess what's interesting is that in all the past years where we've had one loss going into November, I've like played out every playoff scenario imaginable this year. I'm just not really thinking about that. Like at all, like, and maybe I've just accepted that. Uh, this team is just not really cut out for that. And that's okay if they win 11 games. I mean, obviously, if we get a playoff trip out of this somehow, I'd be I'd be thrilled. But um, And we'll talk ourselves into national championship. Right. Let's get that <laughs> yeah. on the record now. If they somehow, if some chaos happens and Notre Dame's in there, I'm going to be talking ourselves into beating Georgia. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's look at 6 through 10, okay, in the AP poll right now, which is not the college football playoff poll, but it means something. At six, you have the Michigan Wolverines. They stink. We would smack them. Um, (laughs) Not smack them, but I think we would beat them. Seven, Oregon, who has Anthony Brown, who's only known losing to Notre Dame by 30 points at Boston College. We would beat Oregon, uh, unless Kayvon Thibodeau does Kayvon Thibodeau things, which could very well happen, but um, they don't scare me. Eight, Michigan State. I mean... Why is Michigan State a top 10 team? They have like three games on their box score where it's like, I don't know how you won that game, including against Nebraska and Indiana. Um, they're going to get exposed in the second half of the season. Nine, Iowa, which is actually the most egregious ranking of all time. <laughs> the last time we saw them on a field, they got blown out 24 to 7 to a Purdue team that we beat last week, or sorry, that we beat by two scores earlier in the year. And then this Purdue team proceeds to lose to Wisconsin with Wisconsin throwing the ball eight times. They moved up two spots, and they didn't play. The last time they played, they lost by 17. And Penn State lost. Yeah. 
And then at 10, you have Ole Miss, who I actually do not think we match up well with at all. But um, but other than that, like, okay, we should probably be, like, number six right now. I, I really think we should, but there's no way to prove that. But so as for the actual outlook, um, I think the Virginia game will be interesting, but they also don't really scare me because they've had, like, three or four games, and you could say this about Notre Dame too, but, like, they've had to really come down from, like, they were down 17 to Louisville. They had a really tight game with Georgia Tech this week. The Miami game, if they don't miss like a like a 19-yard field goal, they they lose that one too. So there's a reason they're not ranked at 6-2 and two, playing in the ACC. Um, and they were also boat raced by North Carolina and, and Wake. So I don't know. Um, I, I think Notre Dame should win every game left on the schedule, right? Um, you're right. Kyle Hamilton makes a difference, particularly I think in the, the North Carolina game, which we know we won't have him for in, in the Virginia game where they have, you know, five stud receivers that they really throw the ball around to pretty evenly. But I just – I think what would be successful for this team is if they win every game the rest of the year, if they don't worry about the ranking stuff. Um, but we also see Tyler Buckner really progress as a passer, which was kind of what I liked what they did with him in the USC game because he actually had a number of, of really nice passes in that game. It wasn't just running situations. That would be a plus um, – you figure out um, – you, you get more ways for Colsey and Styles to get involved, and, and then you figure out a way on defense to, to get D.J. Brown and, and Tariq Bracey to return for, the, for fifth seasons and, and probably get a grad transfer at safety because that's going to be a position to need next year as well. But And then you go into, like, the Fiesta Bowl and play, I don't know, like Iowa or Pitt, somebody that's not very good and smack Michigan. them. Yeah, and smack – somebody that's not very good and smack them. Um, <laughs> so that's how I see it. I Like – I really don't think they lose a game the rest of the year. I think they figured that out. Like I, I, but I just like, this might be kind of boring. This might be like 2019 where the last five games of the year, we won every game by 28 points and just didn't move in the rankings. So I don't know. I would be pretty content with a 2019 finish, except I don't want to be in the camping world bowl. I know wins out. They will definitely be in a new year six, which ball maybe the Fiesta. I believe those are two at large bids. Fiesta and, and the peach. Fiesta and the Peach. Okay, yeah. So, honestly, if you're the Fiesta Bowl and you can get Notre Dame and Michigan, say Michigan's, say Michigan beats Michigan State, but they lose to Ohio State. So, they're definitely in the New Year's Six as well. That could be great. I would love if Notre Dame finished 12-1 and with a win over Michigan at the end of the year to sort of stamp it off. That'd be great. I think, to me, going to be honest, a lot of it depends on Hamilton. I think if Notre Dame is without Hamilton – they could definitely become more prone to an upset. I don't know who, but honestly, Virginia scares me. They've got a really good passing attack. Scott Stadium at night. It's uh, it's a different it's a different <laughs> environment. And we've already had our struggles at Virginia in the past. That's true. It's just it's one thing if if Hamilton goes out during the game. It's another when teams have tape and time to prepare for a defense without their best player. And Notre Dame has had some really just bad luck with injuries this year, man. It's starting horrible camp. luck. And it's not necessarily like 2015 luck when every starter is going down one week at a time. And that team actually had a re- very real case to be um, in the playoff and, and compete for a national championship. It's not like that this year. But if they're able to win out, and like you said, we see more and more of Tyler Buckner. This past Saturday was exactly what you want to see from Buckner because when he gets in, you can see what he can do on the ground, but then also give him some chances to make some throws downfield. It looks like he's getting better with these more opportunities, so that's great. Also seeing some development on the line, which you and I have been calling for for a while now. And 
if that all happens and Notre Dame finishes 12 and 1 in a transition year, a rebuilding year, you think about where the program has been, you can't not be really, really happy about that. And then hopefully carry some of that momentum into next year when I think we all think this team is going to be competing for a national championship and they'll have a much more difficult schedule. Uh, to prove that, though, with games, obviously the big one that we're going to probably talk about ad nauseum against Ohio State in the season opener. So there's still plenty to play for. I'm particularly worried about this Hamilton thing. I, it's it's just so disappointing. And you think about how much the defense relied on him to cover some of their mistakes. Give him credit. Without him on Saturday, they played really well. Shout out DJ Brown, um, Houston Griffith. Everyone stepped up when they needed to. But teams are going to have more time to prepare to try to pick apart those weaknesses of these guys who are getting on tape a little bit more. Um, But we'll see. I'm not saying that Notre Dame is definitely going to just fall off and lose a bunch of games. I just think it's more realistic now that they could get tripped up one week. Uh, But who knows? It could be like 2019 where they just, at the end of the season, they just finish really strong and, and take care of business. It's the Brian Kelly quote after the Iowa State game where he says, you guys just read this team wrong. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. I mean, the converse of that is that now, Marcus Freeman and um, and O'Leary have more time to work in those guys in practice as well. But you're right. Uh, it's, you know, you want to have Kyle Hamilton back there. Selfishly, I really enjoy watching him play. It also just stinks for the kid who, from everything we see outwardly, clearly loves playing for Notre Dame. And obviously, he's not an idiot, though, either. Um, he's got a lot of money to make at the next level and, and rather soon. So it stinks, just not a, not a fun situation, but... Who knows? Maybe we're just completely overreacting and we're being Mrs. Doubtfire here, but um, hopefully we see him out there again, but I don't know. Yeah. All right, that's all I got. You got any final thoughts? No, just another great weekend in South Bend. Um, tried to meet up with our, our friend Greg Flamong at one point. Didn't work out, but uh, I'm glad he had – it sounds like he had a pretty good trip as well this past <laughs> weekend. But uh, a lot of fun. Looking forward to being back this weekend for a beatdown of Sam Howell. All right, that's it for this episode of Sun Saturday Irish. We'll be back on Friday to get you ready for another Saturday night showdown in South Bend as Notre Dame is set to host North Carolina. Until then, please rate, review, and subscribe, and give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Sons of Sad Irish. Talk to you Friday. Friday.